on this episode of Startup the Science. Hi, my name's Robert Harrison. I've got a physics background. I've got a PhD in semiconductor physics. I live in Munich, Germany, and I'm also qualified as a patent attorney working in Munich and in Paris. And I work an awful lot with startup companies. So I'm really pleased to be with you today to talk about intellectual properties with startup and scale-up companies. Thanks a lot. Enjoy listening. Hi, Robert. You're very welcome to Start Up the Science. It's great to have you here. We should have had you a long time ago already on the podcast. So thanks for joining us today. Well, thanks very much for inviting me, Antonia. So today we're talking about patents and IP strategy and why having a patent portfolio strategy is important to begin with. So maybe let's let's start by talking about the importance of patents, because we know that they can they can be a hassle, especially for early stage startups. They can be expensive. Yeah. They can take years to be granted, and they're quite complicated to write if you are not a lawyer. So, why should we even care about a patent portfolio strategy? And let's imagine when I say we, uh, we're a group of early stage startups, maybe in chemistry. If that's the case, why should we focus on IP strategy from, from the very beginning? I think what you need to think about is what is the major asset of a startup company? And in most cases, it's the know-how that the startups, the founders, their employees, their friends actually bring into the company. It's not as though we've got bricks and mortar, which we can then put into the books and call that valuable assets. All of our assets are in our heads. And patents are one of the ways in which we are actually able to create assets, value for the company. Writing down the inventions that we have, the intellectual property that we've developed in our heads, filing them at the patent office, waiting for the patents to get approved or granted, as we say in legal speak. And then we're actually able to have enforceable rights. And that's really what starts to interest the investors because they know they are investing in people. And it would be very easy if there were no patents for these people just to leave the company, to go and set up their own company. But with the patents that are actually owned by the company, the investors are able to put more money into the company. They're able to secure their investments against the patent rights that are there. And what does that mean? It means, first of all, that the company creates intellectual property that hopefully matches it with its USPs. But it also means that the inventors, the scientists, engineers, and others within the company have actually transferred their knowledge exclusively to the company to use. But it also means that they won't be able to use this same knowledge to set up a competitive company. So that means the startup or the company becomes more attractive to investors, you said. That's mm-hmm. one one aspect that's quite important because even if the people change, the patents are owned by the company. That's right. And the patents have got an enormous amount of knowledge in there. If you ever read a patent document, it's supposed to actually tell you everything, how the invention works. And sometimes they're much better than just looking at textbooks or even reading in papers. You can actually follow the exact description of how the product works and the novelty and the inventiveness, which means that even if the inventor leaves the company or if the inventor has an accident, is no longer able to work in the company, others should be able to follow the description and actually repeat what is going on so that the company is still able to exploit the intellectual property. 
Okay, so the knowledge stays with with the company and the rights stay with the company. And that explains why a lot of investors ask um, one of their first questions for deep tech startups is, do you have patents or have patents been filed or granted? Yeah, that's right. And um, you will even find investors who will say, well, if you've not even started thinking about patent protection, we're not even going to start thinking about investing in you because the investors actually appreciate the quality of the patents behind it. Maybe one exception to that, if you can really justify why it's not a good idea to file a patent. For example, you've got some technology that is so secret that you could only find it out about it when you're actually inside the company and that you don't want to publish that technology in a patent application. Then sometimes you can persuade the investors that your strategy of not filing is much better. But sometimes I get uh, the responses when I'm working for investors saying, oh, you know, we'll keep everything as a trade secret. You then ask, well, how are you keeping it as a trade secret? And you don't really get a good answer. Or you get an answer, well, they're so expensive, so we're not going to bother about it. Or they take so long to go through, there's no point because we're in a fast-moving business. Those are answers that are not really going to satisfy a lot of deep tech investors. It might be okay in some software, but the deep tech investors are really looking for long-term value. So if your product, your technology only has a lifetime of one or two years, then that may not be of interest to the particular investor that you're talking to. And it may be the right strategy not to file for a patent. But if your technology is going to have a lifetime five, 10, maybe even 20, 30 years, then the patent applications are important. Makes sense. So if we think about it statistically, the, the number of cases when a trade secret would make more sense than filing for a patent, there must be there must be very, very few cases where that's a better decision, right? Yes. Exclusively to go for trade secret protection is uh, very, very rare. To go for a mixture of patent protection and trade secret protection, now that decision is a very, very good decision. Because what you're saying there is that for stuff that I can know about, material compositions, for example, new types of polymers where somebody could actually do the analysis, let's go for a patent protection because I've got to, people can find out about my invention just by doing this analysis. But for all of the secret source, the processing behind it, some of the functionalization you might do of materials, that's something you might not put into a patent application. That's something you might try and keep to a closed group of uh, selected uh, uh, professionals within your company. And that is a very, very strong, sound strategy because that creates real value from the patents that are filed, but also keeping the secret source to yourself. Okay. So a combination of patents and uh, secret sauce, uh, secret uh, trades. <laughs> Trade secrets, yes. Trade secrets, that's that. So um, one of the things you mentioned in, in the beginning was that patents are actually rights, enforceable rights. And mm -hmm. As we know, that means you have the right, then you can use this right to stop other parties from doing something, right? Yeah. Can you tell us more about that? What exactly does that mean? So what it means is that if I find somebody who's infringing my patent, I can actually go to the court, I can get an injunction to stop them from infringing the patent, and if necessary, I can get the bailiffs or the, even the police to go in and stop the people from selling the product or from using the product. Um, a couple of years ago, for example, I had the customs authorities in Bremen who actually seized a large number of goods 
in Bremen Harbour uh, coming into Germany because they infringed some intellectual property rights. And I got an order from the court to do that. Well, I didn't get an order from the court. I got a preliminary order from the court to do that. Now, a lot of startups will come along and say, well, I can't afford to do that. You know, what happens if a large company infringes my patents? How can I afford to enforce this patent against the large company? And that's actually a very, very good justification or very good argument. But there are two things there. Firstly, if you know of somebody infringing a patent, it's worthwhile going to your investors and telling them about it and seeing if the investors are prepared to put in some extra funds to enforce the patent. There are funds available from commercial companies, which are which will actually litigation enforcement funds, they're called. They'll pay part of the litigation. They'll expect to take quite a large proportion of any of your wins. But the last point, and I think that's more important for startups, is don't think of it in the context of your small startup. Think of the context in three, four, five, ten years' time when you've done your exit. If you've exited to a large company, they're going to have the funds to enforce the patent if they want to. And they'll be looking already now at young, new, innovative technology to allow them to build their portfolio up in the next 10 years. So even if you say, well, you know, I've only got a sort of, you know, a couple of hundred thousand um, from intellectual property work, I cannot afford to enforce this patent. You're thinking too short term. You've got to think in that long term. You can wait. You don't have to go immediately to the court every time you see an infringement. In fact, sometimes it's better not to go to the courts, have that discussion with the infringer. Maybe you can come to a win-win deal. Maybe you can even license your patent out to the infringer and get additional revenue coming in. So a few years ago for a a startup based uh, up in North Rhine-Westphalia, one of the German states, we helped them actually license the patent out to a major Korean company. So instead of sort of um, going to court and trying to enforce a patent because it was being infringed by this Korean company, we were actually able to get them substantial six-figure revenue coming into the company, which obviously helped them. And that's one of the other advantages about patents. Don't just think about them as being enforceable rights, which we have to enforce. Think of them also being as an active asset. Who could you license them to? How can we get, you know, get a win-win situation out of our intellectual property rights? Right. So in some situations, they could be leveraged for a negotiation, for example, with a company that might be infringing on, on your patent. If you don't have a patent, there's nothing to infringe upon. Precisely. You can't, you, well, you can license trade secrets out to somebody, but uh, then you have to tell people your secret source, as I mentioned before. Um, whereas if you've got that patent behind you, you can actually have that really good conversation with a possible infringer, and you can get some really great revenue sort of coming into your company if you get the discussions going properly. So you mentioned licensing agreements, and I would like to come back to that um, in a moment because I'd like to understand, you know, what they are, how they can be used. Do you need to have a patent first before you can license? You kind of mentioned you don't. But just before before we talk about that, I wanted to ask you um, something about how much can be disclosed before a patent is filed. So many of the startups we work with and many of the startups you support um, start off in a university or in a research context. And in, in that context, they might have published a paper, they might have written um, you know, their PhD, 
on a topic that may be exactly the topic that they then pursue in their future startups or something very close. So how much can a startup disclose of their invention in a non-confidential setting before actually filing an application for a patent? Um, that, well, theoretically nothing, but we all know that that's not possible at all. Just to give you a little bit of a background, in Europe, you have to file a patent before you disclose something. Otherwise, this disclosure will count against the patent's ability. It will no longer be novel. The America, in America and in Japan and a few other countries, it's possible to wait one year before you actually file the patent. Even if you've published something, you can still wait that one year. And by the way, it's also possible for Europeans to take advantage of that if they file in the United States. Some people forget about that. There are, however, certain things you can do. Firstly, if you've got a publication, it's under review, and you've been told that it's been accepted for publication, you can file very quickly an initial patent application, a provisional patent application, very quickly with a patent office to at least get initial rights on that. The Americans have something they call the provisional patent filing, which deals with that. But actually, in Europe, it's quite possible just to file something at the UK patent office or at the German patent office um, and don't even pay the fees so that you've got your basically your stamp, your piece of paper that says it's been filed. And then you can turn that into a, an, a proper patent publication. Just one point about that is we had really interesting example a couple of uh, months ago where somebody did exactly that. And we were told it was going to be published on the 1st of October in a particular journal. Unfortunately, what happened in that case, there was early online publication sometime in July, which we were never told about. So we happily filed the patent application in September. When the publication finally came out, we saw that it had been published online much earlier, which basically meant that that was going to nix, was going to kill the European patent application. But fortunately, because it was uh, the invention was really relevant for the United States, we at least were able to save the US patent there. So that's something to be thinking about. The other thing you can think about is that if it's based on MSc work thesis or a PhD thesis, most universities will be prepared to put a publication bar on it to stop it being published before you've got the patent application on file. And talk, you know, talk to the patent attorneys, talk to the technology transfer officers in your university as soon as you realize that you might have something that's patentable there. There are ways and means of combining publications with patents at the same time. And then, of course, you can always choose to disclose under non-disclosure agreements. They're not ideal because if they're broken, they're broken and you can't really save them at all. You know, basically a non-disclosure agreement says, I tell you all about my technology, but you promise not to reveal it to anybody. And then this sometimes happens, they start talking to people, to a consultant who they want to evaluate the technology, and suddenly your technology becomes public. Even though the non-disclosure agreement has been broken, you cannot save your patent application, or you will often not be able to save your patent application. So that's why I always say, get the patent application on file as quickly as possible. Talk to your technology transfer organization, if there's one in the university, or your research institute, get them to file it, tell them deadlines, who's publishing it, when's been published, when it's going online. And if the worst comes to the worst, 
you know, even file it yourself or, you know, use your friendly patent attorney to file the application for you. Most patent offices have got nowadays really good instructions for self-filing. Wouldn't recommend that long-term, to be honest with you, because you can easily make mistakes, but at least you can actually file everything online these days and get your initial piece of paper. Okay. So that makes sense. So you can disclose some things in some context, but you have to be extremely careful. What about in early conversations with investors? They, of course, will ask about your IP strategy. They want to see you have one and that you at least plan to file for patents. And nowadays we see more and more investors uh, with a technical background who would be able to understand even a quite complex technology. What about these conversations? How should startups handle these? I mean, the first thing about it is um, a lot of investors don't want to receive confidential information to start off with. They get so many um, sort of tasters coming in from different areas. They don't want to be bound by confidentiality agreements because they could easily break them by accident. It's really easy to break confidentiality agreements by accident, by the way. it's A lot of times it's not even done deliberately. So get the taster on there. The taster might just say, we have filed patent applications on this subject matter polymer, uh, new type of semiconductor device or something like that. Maybe even list how many patents you filed, where they've been filed, just with a simple one-line title. The next stage is when you start getting into that detailed discussion, at some stage, the investors will want to see the patent applications or documents. If they've been published then they can easily access them over the internet. You should have no problems in giving them actually the numbers to actually be able to look at them. That'll be That's not a problem at all. But if the documents have not yet been published or they're still in the preparation phase, you really need to make certain that you've got a strong non-disclosure agreement set up with the investor there. And that's when you start, you'll be anyway, be, they'll be probably be doing due diligence on your technology, on your financials, et cetera. So you sh- if you're in that level of discussions, then I would have little reservation about sharing my patent applications with them. Okay. But still ideal is to file a patent first before you go into these conversations. And that's always the safer choice. That, but not only is it the safer choice, it also shows that you are very, very aware of what is going on and that you're managing your technology properly. If you've just filed a provisional patent application by yourself, which I talked to about a moment ago, then be open and honest about the patent application, um, that it's just a self-filed one just to preserve your rights. I've done a couple of due diligences for investors where that's not they, people have not been open and up, um, open about what that patent application has involved. And so the report that I get say it basically goes back to them said, this is not a good quality patent application because I've not got the backgrounds. Because there are there are um, founders who think that they can file their own patent application well. With respect, yes, I suppose if you've got a certain amount of legal and patent training, you should be able to file a decent one. One of the reasons why you want to employ somebody else to actually file the patent application is so that they're not blind to your technology so that they know how to explain your technology to the patent office, to the investors, to judges. Whereas if you write the patent application yourself, you're probably going to overlook um, certain fairly elementary things because to you, they're elementary. Whereas to an outside reader, 
they need to be explained in a little bit of detail. So going back to licensing agreements, which you mentioned earlier, can you tell us what licensing agreements are? Do they replace patents? I guess not, but in which situations are they used? Licensing agreements are fairly frequently used when you want to get technology from another company or a research unit. So certainly within the startup world, there are two big cases when they're used. The first thing is, I worked in my PhD or on my MSc on this technology in the university. The university owns the right to this technology, but I want to use it in my startup agreement. You need to license that work from the university. If you were just a student, you own all of the intellectual property. We don't have to worry too much about that. If, however, you had some form of employment agreement with the university, as a lot of PhD students do, but also some master's, MSc students do, then you have to start thinking about who owns the technology. And the fact that you develop the technology does not mean that you have the right to work that technology. You need to really think about who actually owns it. Because if you look at your employment agreement, you will probably find something in there that says that the university owns all of the ideas that you got. You're allowed to put it into your PhD thesis or your MSc thesis, not a hassle. But the university and maybe even the sponsors of the research, in my case, when I did my PhD in uh, um, semiconductor physics, it was sponsored by British Telecom. They had the right to all of the results that I actually produced from it. So you are going, you want to set up your startup. Can you actually use this technology? Has the university filed um, a patent or is there know-how out there or maybe software? So you need a license agreement from that, from the university to you to be able to exploit this technology. The second time it comes into play is when you either want to license out your technology to somebody else. For example, if you're developing a new type of polymer and you know that it's got lots of applications, you cannot deal with all of these applications. So why don't we look around for potential people to use that applications and we license our platform technology out there. Or maybe we realize there's some complementary technology that we need to put into place. So we need to license technology into the company. And it doesn't just have to be patents, as you mentioned yourself. It could also be trade secrets, but they're a bit more challenging to license. And if you get into licensing trade secrets, you really need to put protection in place through walls, Chinese walls, through password protection to ensure that only the right people have access to the work, that the, te- the trade secrets, the secret source, as I said earlier on. Okay. Okay. So licensing is something we should think about or our minds should go when there's a situation in which one person owns the patent and another person would use it, essentially. And that, that person could be actually an organization, institution, a university, or another company. And Okay, I think that part is clear. Another term that we we hear sometimes is material transfer agreements. And uh, the name of it sounds similar to what you've explained now in terms of licensing agreements, but I'm sure there's a difference. Maybe you can tell us what it is. Yes, that, that that's right. And, um, we, you know, you and I have talked about material transfer agreements. I think there's even a video available of the presentation that I did, so if somebody's more interested in it. But the material transfer agreement is something, agreement that you make with somebody who wants to use your material. So it's often the patents will have been filed, the material will have been developed, and you found somebody who wants to use your material for a particular application. 
So what you can do, you can give them the material. You can give, give them material, say, please use it, and they can play around with it. And anything they do with that material does not belong to you, but belongs to the person who's been playing around with the material. If you don't have a material transfer agreement in place, and people often forget about it, suddenly they find patent applications are filed on their new material, new applications for their material, and that's perfectly legitimate if there's no restrictions in place. So what we recommend doing and what we try and encourage people is put this material transfer agreement in place. This says you can only use this material for this particular application, and you have to give us feedback about what's happening. And we'll have to talk about who actually can file for patent applications so that you have these restrictions on it. And that's certainly quite a good idea if you've got a novel type of material, because you don't want your person that you've supplied it to, to be able to use this material for anything that they actually want to use it for. You want them to exploit it in a particular field where they might have some competencies and get, you know, get genuine knowledge from it, because you might at the same time be talking to other companies in other fields, and you want to make certain there's no overlap. Now, we all know scientists, engineers are very curious people. Sometimes they're not too worried about what the agreements actually say, but at least you've got this agreement in place. And if for some reason the other company finds some application which wasn't covered by the agreement, at least you've got some form of comeback. At least you can actually say, well, you're not supposed to have done that. Okay, naughty boys, naughty girls, you shouldn't have done that. But that's a great idea. Let's start talking about licensing it in, how we're going to exploit it, probably jointly in the future. But, and that gives you real um, sort of real leverage on this company. So material transfer agreements are in a way more restrictive than a licensing agreement would be, right? They, they give the other party less, fewer options of what to do with your, your material. That, that's right. And, you know, often with the material transfer agreement, it's all for research and development purposes only. It doesn't actually allow them to commercialize what they came up, what they've come up with. If you want them to commercialize, then you go for a full-scale licensing agreement. Okay. So that's a pretty significant difference. It's, it's good to have that in mind. So, Robert, as we're coming uh, close to, to the end of this conversation where we've learned a lot, we learned that it's very important, to, first of all, to have some sort of IP strategy at an early stage if you want investors to pay attention to you. It's especially important. Um, we've learned a bit about what patents are, what are licensing agreements, what are material transfer agreements. Now, there's a lot to know and a lot of information, so probably best thing to do for an early stage startup is to go see a lawyer if they want to know more about this. But let's say um, if you're an early stage company and you're just starting to think about this, what would be the first three steps, let's say, that you should take in order to start building up this future strong IP portfolio? So the first thing is, do you actually own the technology at the end of the day? I've already talked about it coming out of the university or coming out of another company. You don't necessarily own your ideas. So first of all, do you actually own the ideas? If you don't own the ideas, obviously, you need to get the license agreement that we already talked about. The second thing really important is to file your, for your own intellectual property protection as soon as possible, as soon as you've got some really decent rights, because that starts really adding to the value of the company. And in that connection, 
find the right patent attorney to work with, interview two or three patent attorneys. Do they actually understand your technology? Do they actually understand what you're trying to do? It's no good going to a mechanical engineer if you want to file a biotechnology patent. But even so, if you, you go to an, a physicist, for example, for all types of physics-related stuff, can you find somebody who really understands the technology? Because those people, those patent attorneys, will be able to explain it better to the patent office and to others. And the third thing I think you need to think about, keep on thinking about new ideas, new patents. To merely have one patent, to base your whole company on one basic patent, is probably a mistake. It's a probably people say, well, we can't afford to file new patents. Yes. But if that one patent falls because somebody's made a mistake, because somebody's missed a deadline, because there's prior arts, the patent office doesn't approve your patents, then suddenly your whole business program collapses around you. Whereas if less, if you've got your basic core patents and a few patents around the outside, and you really sit down and think about how to develop that portfolio over the years, then you will have a much, much stronger intellectual property rights position. You'll be able to say your company is a lot more valuable and you'll be actually be able to justify the value of your company based not just on the products, not just on the sales, but also on the patent position that you have. Two patents are better than one patent. Three patents are even better. But the other thing is maybe the last message, use your funds, your limited funds seriously. Filing 10 patents for a small startup company is probably not worth it. Think about how much you want to invest in your intellectual property portfolio. Think about how much the investors will want to invest. Talk to them. They'll probably have some ideas about it and manage that budget carefully. You don't need to file worldwide for every single patent application. It may be that you're best granted um, uh, protection in the United States and Europe, and you just ignore potential protection in some countries. So I think there were four messages there that we need to think about. But, you know, get it right, think strategically, and experience shows that you will really add value to your company. And keep on thinking of new ideas and and new patents. Think of new ideas, yes. You know, wealth creation comes from innovation. We know that. It's been shown by Nobel Prize winners. And patents are actually one way of demonstrating that and one way of retaining that wealth within your company. Thank you, Robert. That's uh, great advice. And I hope many of the startups listening to this uh, learned new things today. I'm sure they did. And we will uh, see you soon at uh, the next IP workshop we organize together. Thanks very much indeed. It's been uh, great to talk to you today. Enjoyed the conversation. Look forward to uh, working with you in the future. Thanks for listening to Startup the Science. If you'd like to learn more about our podcast, head to www.enum.berlin slash startupthescience. You can also follow us on YouTube, LinkedIn, Twitter, and Instagram. If you'd like to leave us a message or ask us or our guests any questions, send us a DM or leave us a message on our website. We would love to hear from you. Stay tuned for our next episode. Coming soon.